Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Elkhorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So we're here on Cape Cod, Sarah, and we are on the case on Cape Cod. Yep. And what case is that? Krista Worthington. So we came out to Cape Cod to really kind of like walk in the footsteps of Krista and just really experience the whole environment here. And it really gave me a different perspective on everything. Absolutely. It's really pretty isolating out here. Yes, it is. Even we're here in high summer and it's already got this feeling that people are kind of like going home and it's a little bit we're here in the end of end of the summer towards labor day and obviously covid is affecting it i honestly feel like we've gone from summer to fall like you feel like the nip in the air already right out here definitely i mean i just can't even imagine how isolating it is here i used to live in new york so i would go to the hamptons and so different here i mean i grew up in massachusetts but I mean, here in the fall and winter to me, I just think it would be almost scary. The contrast of the Cape between the summer and the winter is like night and day. And I feel like if depression were a season, it would be winter in Cape Cod. Because you come out here and there are these like cheery reminders of like summer joy, like little gray shingle shacks with like cut out ice cream cones and mini golf ranges that are covered in snow. It's almost like the party has left, migrated to warmer climes. Definitely. You know, it's like got this emptied feeling. It's very depressing on the Cape in the wintertime. In the darkening afternoon of January 6, 2002, Tim Arnold headed over to Krista Worthington's house. He had left her voice messages over the past couple of days. They had made vague plans to have dinner. She hadn't answered. As he got closer to her gray shingled bungalow, something felt strange. Her door had been smashed and slightly open. At first, Arnold had trouble processing the scene in front of him. Krista was lying on the floor of the kitchen, and her two-year-old daughter, Ava, appeared to be nursing her mother. What the hell, thought Arnold. Krista's eyes were open, and blood had haloed beneath her body. She was nude below the waist, one leg bent at an angle. Arnold could see Ava's tiny, bloody handprints on her mother's body. It was clear that Krista was dead, and she had bruises on her face. Who could have killed this intelligent single mother known for her fashion writing, and who would let a two-year-old suffer unimaginable terror and neglect. Krista graduated class of 77 from Vassar College. Vassar College is an effete, snooty Seven Sisters school two hours north of Manhattan by train. It was established as a liberal arts school in 1861. Originally, it was all female, but it went co-ed in 1969. The campus is very grand. I've been there. Originally a fairy tale education for New York City's elite darlings of Fifth Avenue. Vaunted alumni include everyone from Meryl Streep, Jackie Onassis, Jane Fonda, the poet Elizabeth Bishop, to more recent grads like Anthony Bourdain, actress Lisa Kudrow, and director Noah Baumbach. 
as a teenager, I used to go to Vassar. Also, I have had the pleasure of my own sister, Margaret Weir, who was a Vassar graduate, and she contributed to this episode. I know. That's, she, so, that's so cool. We had Margaret. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah, thank she you, was Margaret. A, she did a lot of work on this, actually. Yes, she did. So my sister went to Vassar in the mid-80s, and so she's got firsthand experience. And it wasn't too long after Krista Worthington had attended. And Vassar, like Krista was sort of a bit of a contradiction. Like on the one hand, you had the daily tea in the rose parlor with your granny's pearls and a twin set affair. You were surrounded by like countesses and New York socialites. By night, you'd find yourself super drunk, donning a ski mask and dark clothes to go raid the faculty vegetable garden or steal golf carts from the course or go break into the swimming pool. <laughs> but it was really wild, Laura. Like I went there as a 16-year-old. First of all, the men were all super gorgeous and fun and high glam, high party. I had a blast. We used to hang out at a place called The Mug. Sarah, you're telling a University of Miami graduate what wild is? <laughs> I, know. I know this is Sorry. Ivy League murders, but so I will hold my tongue. <laughs> but we do have some UM graduates who listen and they know what I'm talking about. But my sister can tell has a million stories. In fact, she's going to do a blog attached to this episode just about Vassar party scene. It's also a place where there was mad eccentric money, super New York money and pre-AIDS when gay liberation lifestyle was blooming wildly and creatively, like making for super decadent, fantastic party. Vassar boasted one of the best art history programs in the world. And so you had the superb education if you could possibly like resist this incredible social life. My sister told me something really funny though, too. There's something called the Gentleman's Sea Club. The, so like the letter C, right? Not the, the open C. That's right. That's right. Because right. that C confused club. me. Okay. And so that's basically the super elite sons not trying to get good grades because they look down on that. That like a middle class thing to do is to like strive for good grades. Well, basically. C's get degrees. That's what we say. <laughs> C's get degrees. And my well, your your like, position <laughs> at the bank is guaranteed. Right, so why right. the hell try? Right, go party. You I know, makes sense. To you me. know, but you did study hard if you weren't from Mad Money. But it was another world, really. Your countesses and socialites, and so no wonder Krista didn't blink when she was surrounded by like high fashion and near monarchs. How did Krista go from Vassar life and that kind of lofty world to one in which there are five plausible suspects in her murder? It's a crazy transition. Mm -hmm. One of the first suspects the police looked at was Tim Arnold himself. Tim was Krista's ex-boyfriend and they had a strained relationship. Tim was obsessed with Krista and she seemed to be perennially pushing him away. When the police arrived on the scene, they were out of their depth. There hadn't been a murder in Truro for 30 years. You had a police department that was used to busting lobstermen for gathering too many lobsters or kids for breaking into summer homes to steal booze. Sarah, they weren't equipped. They were good cops. They just weren't equipped for this level of a crime. That's right. Actually, one of the first responders, because we need to back up a little bit and say that when Tim went into the house, he sees this devastating scene of Ava Worthington, Krista's daughter, in this bloody scene, basically trying to take care of her mother. There's her little tiny baby footprints around the scene, little bloody footprints. So immediately Tim scoops up Ava and brings Ava to his father, who's waiting in the car outside. Right. And Krista, yeah. we didn't mention that she's found naked from the waist down. And the police actually used a blanket to cover her up, which was one of their early missteps in yep. kind of sabotaging the crime scene. And 
sabotaging the evidence that nothing should have been touched. They didn't cordon off the crime scene either. Yes. Their people were kind of tromping in and right, tromping right. out, including actually Krista's cousin, Jen Worthington, who was an EMT. They didn't have a great relationship or anything, but she was just devastated right, to see right. Krista on the floor. This is one of the most heartbreaking cases I've ever seen because you see that this little girl, this little toddler, has tried to take care of her mother. She has dragged a stool over to a sink, has wet cloth to try to wipe her mommy off. She says, mommy fell down. Mommy got into my paints. Oh my God. And she's been there, Sarah, probably 24 to 36 hours. She has. I just pray that she was sleeping when her mother was attacked. I I mean, it's just so heartbreaking. Apparently she had like a terrible diaper rash too because she hadn't been changed. There's some indication that she was actually trying to nurse her mother, even though Ava was two and a half years old. She would do that basically for comfort. So one of the first responders said Ava was just like clinging to him. Oh, like yeah. she would not let him go. Just as heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. And finally, a family friend comes and takes Ava and she eventually goes to a close by uncle's house. The Worthingtons all own property on that depot road. So she was brought to a relative. Like we said, Tim Arnold was immediately picked out as a suspect. And in fact, his own father asked him if he did it, Laura. Let's look at Tim Arnold for a moment. So Tim had major health problems. He had just had brain surgery, which in my mind is kind of a double-edged sword in a way. On the one hand, he's kind of debilitated. He couldn't drive himself. That's why his father was driving him over to Krista's. He leaves her a series of messages that are really, depending on how you look at them, I think it could be kind of interpreted that she was trying to blow him off and he was increasingly getting angry on these messages, Laura, and calls her like four or five times. I'm like, dude, get the hint. I don't interpret them as that. I just, I think if you reverse the sex and there were a female leaving the messages, you would just see them as a desperate girl leaving a message for a guy not calling her back. I don't interpret any of it. It really is any type of anger. But the other part of it though is I could see him as a suspect, leaving these messages to sort of alibi himself. Let's back up and explain their relationship a little bit. I think Tim Arnold was kind of obsessed with Krista, and she really was not that into him. No, and they had lived together at some point, but there's definitely, their history is that she was annoyed with him. She used to tell him she didn't want him humming. She didn't want Ava to become a hummer. And he had a lot of health problems. He'd like walk into things. He obviously was a result of whatever brain issues he had. And this concerned her. She was worried he would like walk into Ava. So, But he makes some strange statements to the police. He says, listen, you might find my fingerprints on her window. I used to go and kind of look in her window. And Well, I think a lot of that's taken out of context. I think he said he had gone there before and she wasn't home and he looked in the window and that had bothered her. So I don't think it was a regular thing. I think a lot of things... In all the people here who are suspected, things are said or taken out of context. I think so too. But I think he had some serious health problems, which also make the police believe he may not have been capable of this level. May not have been capable, but he may have been on all kinds of steroids as well, which would make you aggressive. You're also dealing with the brain. And if you mess with that, I think the more compelling thing, I think they do, they take his DNA. Actually, that blanket, we'll, we'll get to the DNA a little bit. Yeah, later. I don't read aggressive from him, but 
we'll get to our read on the suspects later. Yeah, but it's a little sketchy. I think the police immediately thought that his convenient returning of the flashlight was a bit fishy. It's like she didn't ask for the flashlight. Yeah, but I mean, how many times do girls leave like something in a guy's apartment to have an excuse to go back? The flashlight was just an excuse to go. I have never done that. I've never done that either, but I have seen (laughs) other people do that or seen that on TV. I know it's not a thing that gets done. The police do an autopsy and the autopsy reveals that Worthington had sperm inside of her and that she had been stabbed through basically the lung and she'd been stabbed so violently Laura that the knife had impaled her to the floor it had nicked the floor Mm -hmm. underneath so she had been stabbed clean through with a knife the weapon was never recovered as far as we know right and she also had saliva on her breast so there was also DNA found on her breast why don't we learn a little about Crystal Worthington and her past, yeah, okay. Sarah? Crystal Worthington was born December 23rd of 1956. She was the only child of Gloria and Toppy Worthington. She grew up in the affluent town of Hingham, and she attended Hingham High and then went on to Vassar. After Vassar, Worthington made her mark working as a fashion writer at L and Cosmo and Harper's Bazaar. And she also briefly ran Women's Wear Daily in Paris. In 1997, Krista moved to Truro. So she makes this big jump, Laura, from high-end fashion world to Truro, Massachusetts. I actually think that that was precipitated more. I I know in a lot of articles, it kind of looks like, oh, she decided to give up her life in New York to kind of settle down in a small town in Truro. But I think it was precipitated by her mother's cancer diagnosis, perhaps, because her mother gets diagnosed with cancer and she moves back. And I think that she wanted to be closer to her mother and then this kind of maybe makes her reevaluate her life and her decisions and decide to come and kind of go back, be near family, be closer to home, and live, I, a, live that's a quiet true. life. But yeah, we have to also explain how entrenched the Worthingtons were in Truro. Of course. In order to understand where Truro is, so Cape Cod stretches out from Massachusetts like an arm with its fist curled and the fist being province down the very tip. So Truro is like the wrist and it's called the outer cape. We're out here right now. We're so in the fist, yeah. yeah. And so even now in high summer, it's pretty desolate. It's got this kind of end of the earth kind of feeling. And so the Worthingtons have been entrenched in Truro for generations. In fact, Krista's grandfather, John Worthington, had pretty much single-handedly pulled Truro out of the depression by forming like a fishing conglomerate. And then Tiny Worthington, who was his wife, and it's an ironic nickname because she was like six feet tall. And I guess I read that she had like size 10 feet. She did. She had size 10 (laughs) feet. That was like, yeah, that's why she had this nickname. And so Tiny was like a total force to be reckoned with. In part of the tiny Worthington mythos, she invents fishnet stockings, which actually doesn't end up being true. What she did was she developed these like stylish high-end pieces that involved fishnet. She would use the fishnet Mm. in like bags and hands. And then she sold these in really high-end New York, like boutiques and major department stores like Bonwit Teller and that kind of thing. 
The Worthingtons also owned about 10 properties on Depot Road. We were just on Depot Road the other day, and I read they still do. We actually posted some footage. It's in the dark. Sarah and I decided to get really creepy and drive on Depot Road in the dark. We did. We felt like spies. Yes. So you really can't see anything but the creepy factors there. Krista would eventually move into and be murdered in Tiny's Cottage. Yeah. And that was like a little bungalow on a strip of road called Depot Road. So Krista finds herself, like many women, approaching their 40s with a stellar resume, but no partner and no child. And I've had this discussion with lots of friends. Me too. It's almost like I feel like our generation were pushed so hard. I found myself in the same position. I was like 37 and I didn't have a kid. And I was like, holy shit, I have to get on the ball about having a kid. And I did. Beautiful daughter named Juliet. Thank you. I found myself, it was like career, 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 career. And then you lose sight of the fact that you've got this biological clock that's ticking. I used to live in Manhattan and this was like really prevalent, I found, because women did put their careers first. And I had a lot of these discussions with my friends. I had Lily when I was 33. So yeah, I think it is an issue for a lot of women. And unfortunately, we don't have all the time time in the world. And I think Krista found herself in this position. And I think with her mother dying, like a lot of things. And she'd also been diagnosed when she comes to this decision of like, boy, you know, I better get on this. She's actually tragically diagnosed with early menopause. The doctors are like, basically, you can't conceive. Maybe it's at this time she thinks, okay, I'm going to move out to Truro. I'm going to get serious about my writing, live a more solitary life. So she does. So she moves out to Truro and kind of settles into this cottage to live a more solitary life and kind of settle down without a child. And it sounds so lonely to me, though. It really does. I think especially now that I've been out here now at this time and I've been here before, but this time, like, not on vacation and just going there and seeing how I... It's, like, really small roads and windy and just really isolated and... This is what was her choice. And and Kristen's pretty attractive. Like, I think she's kind of attractive. She's got sort of like my father calls like the beauty of character in some ways. Like she's intelligent. She's, oh, yeah. And she's know, very she's, pretty and like yeah. waif-like and small. And so she's on the water. And she's having a lot of boats kind of park in front of her house, which is annoying her. And she starts complaining to the harbor master. And this is how she meets Tony Jacket. So tell us how. I don't want to make fun of people who are suspects in this crime, but she did meet Tony Jacket. Romantic times happened when she saw when he was in typical 90s fashion, and people who are young won't understand this, but rollerblading was kind of a big thing in the 90s. And so Tony was like rollerblading around the parking lot. In front of Christus. In front of Christus. And she invited him in for tea, which one thing turned into another. And they started a horrid affair apparently where they just spent the whole day in bed and well we have to kind of explain jacket so tony jacket was kind of the stud of Truro, as it were. I mean, he was... Well, I don't know know that he had ever really stepped out before, but he was, I guess, considered handsome, and he had six kids. He was married, but he was quite charming. Kind of charismatic, and he was a fisherman, but what happened was the fishing industry in Cape Cod dried up pretty badly. He found himself, he was like the shellfish constable. In other words, people who were illegally clamming, he'd go and he'd nail them. So he's basically like kind of like a shellfish cop. Right, and this might sound silly to people, but it's not silly. Fishing, this is a major industry, and breaking these laws is a big deal. I've seen other people kind of make light of this, but this is nothing. This is people's livelihood here. So if you're clamming out there in the Cape, don't let Laura 
catch you. I'm serious. Chill narc on you. No, this is people's livelihoods. This is how they make their money. I think it was kind of a made up position. I don't know. Whatever. One thing leads to another and Krista actually ends up getting pregnant by Jacket. Right. He's not too happy about this. I mean, he's having an affair. He has six kids already. Yeah. And she told him that she couldn't get pregnant. Right. So it's like, what? Surprise you know, kid. Surprise kid. And she's yeah. 43. Right. By the way, he's married to Susan Jacket, who was voted one of the most beautiful women in the Cape. And he doesn't tell his wife, Susan, until way after Ava is born. At this point, Krista is pursuing him for support. Basically, she wants medical insurance for right. herself and for Ava. But let's back up and just say that when she's initially fine, she's pregnant, she tells him, don't worry about it. I'm going to do this on my own. She's thrilled that she's pregnant. Right. That's and right. then, but as time goes on, her resentment grows because she does love him and she just starts to feel more and more alone. Like she's going through the pregnancy alone and she's isolated. So this resentment is growing. And at one point she writes Susan a letter and this is once Ava's born and just kind of vents all of this anger in this really crass. The letter, which was read eventually in court, she never sends a letter to Susan. We should qualify, but it's a nasty letter. It's twisting the knife. Susan, when you thought he was picking up your son, quote unquote, he was fucking me. Something sort of unusual happens in this relationship. Because Susan accepts Ava and Krista in and they kind of wind up a few weeks before she dies. They are all at a winter solstice together. Susan accepts her because she wants Ava to have her father in her life. I don't see the letter as being any big deal. I've written letters of anger and resentment and poured my soul out and never mailed them. Yeah. And looked back and said, oh my God, I can't believe I wrote these horrible things. So I don't really see that as any huge thing. And this is obviously why Susan and Tony become suspects. Because because he finally does. He finally tells his wife when Ava's one and a half. And she comes to, she initially is, of course, quite upset. She does come to accept Krista and Ava. And in this like really kind of modern way, they sometimes hang out together. But of course, Tony Jacket is the second suspect. And Susan. And actually, the sort of the extended family, because they also have a son and a daughter who had had some exchanges with Krista, that that family now sort of becomes part of the suspect pool. And they, right, their DNA is taken and they're polygraphed. But also they do pass the polygraph. They they, they pass the polygraph. And their DNA isn't found, but they will remain suspects until someone's arrested. Okay, Laura. And then also, strangely, there's another pool of suspects that come up. This is weird. Yeah, this one's a weird one. One of the suspects that came up was actually Krista's own father, Toppy Worthington. We have to explain a little bit of Krista's relationship with Toppy. One thing that I had read that I found disturbing, basically Krista was moving into Tiny's cottage, right, which was part of the Worthington estate. Toppy Worthington put that house on the market. So she got a call from like a realtor saying like, hey, when are you ready to show the house? And she was like, WTF, like I'm moving into this house. We're not selling this house. I'm moving into it. Toppy sort of seemed like he would play these games. And also when Gloria Worthington was was dying, Toppy was basically like MIA. And there was some issues with Gloria's property and sale of her property and the money and yeah yeah let's mention that toppy had a 29 year old girlfriend who was an ex-prostitute heroin addict and hiv positive right and her name was beth 
Porter, Elizabeth Porter. Strangely, Elizabeth Porter was also somebody who testified at Dirk Griniter's trial. She was one of the escorts at Dirk Griniter also. That's an episode that we've done, Yale, right. Yale to you, Jail. If you've missed you know. that, check that out on our earlier episodes. Right, right. Since it's pretty bizarre that this woman would show up in two of our cases. Because she's not Ivy League. Beth Porter was HIV positive. She was a heroin addict. Toppy had put her up in a place called the Ritz Manor in Quincy. It does definitely belies the name Ritz. You right. Know, but Toppy was also giving a lot of money to Beth Porter, right. kind of supporting her heroin lifestyle. But there was also some rumors that Beth Porter was Toppy's love child, which ended up not being true. Like, no, and I'm not going after Beth Porter, and I don't want to sound bad like she's not Ivy League, but because she has a heroin problem, or even for being a sex worker, I'm giving her a hard time for dating a 75-year-old man. (laughs) Beth Porter also had this other boyfriend, Ed Hall, kid from Dorchester. They became suspects in this, basically, because Krista was super vocal about her worries about that as her father was basically being hoodwinked by Beth Porter and a lot of the substance that would go to Krista and to Ava were being channeled into Beth Porter. Well, let's also say that Krista thought maybe her father was being scammed, like one of these like gentlemen's or sugar daddy scams where Beth Porter was kind of scamming her father out of money. So it kind of gave Beth Porter a motive motive, to kill Krista because if Krista's a squeaky wheel and her heroin money was going to run out, Beth Porter was a suspect because of those reasons. Right, and she had vocalized negative things about Krista in the past, although she does later say that she was quite sorry about saying those things. Right, so meanwhile, the police had the DNA results back. And remember the blanket that the police had thrown over Krista's body because it was spread eagle on the floor? Yes. They actually find Tim Arnold's sperm on it. But since Tim had lived with Krista and Ava, it would be totally feasible that his DNA would be there. And I just want to mention, Sarah, I wish we kind of forgot to mention is that Toppy um, and his girlfriend both failed the polygraph test. That's right. And and Porter had said, hey, look, I was high when I took the test. I mean, that's interesting. And look, he had lived with her, Tim Arnold, so it would make sense that body fluids could be on blankets. And they have no idea how old that was. The golden goose in this case, Laura, was the DNA that was found in Krista. And none of the suspects so far matched that DNA. So the case went as cold as a New England winter until the police took a controversial step and they did a DNA dragnet and asked every male in Truro to submit their DNA. And that was a few hundred people. And it all took place at the Gossip Nexus in Truro, which is the post office. We actually took pictures of the post, yeah. surreptitiously took pictures of the we post did. office in Truro. And and I mean, this is where I get like super, I mean, in no way I'd never give my DNA. Right. And that, <laughs> that would make you an automatic suspect. Right. Though. Well, that would be okay because I think it's a complete violation. And I think the police should have taken the DNA of people in her inner circle before they went on a dragnet. Which they did. So in the original investigation, the police had interviewed anyone who had had contact with Krista and had collected their DNA. So among the people they had spoken to, Chris McCowan had willingly given them his DNA and told them that he didn't know Krista. So McCowan was the garbage man for the town of Truro. His DNA comes back as a hit. It does. His DNA is the DNA that they find inside of Krista's vagina. It is, and so he's arrested. They also, by the way, found his saliva on her breast, and that was co-mingled with Ava's saliva because Ava had tried to nurse her mother. 
Chris McCowan was arrested in April of 2005. About a year later, his trial takes place. And so let's go into McCowan a little bit. So Laura and I have, and we've gotten a little salty over our disagreement about McCowan. And so naturally, Laura will take the prosecutor's point of view. And the prosecutor in this case was a guy by the name of Welsh. Welsh was part of this multi-generation family that had fathers, grandfathers had been judges. Oh, yeah, out. fourth and, generation. You know, so he, yeah. I think he was trying to be the fifth generation of, and no, he went to Georgetown You're right. law. So he was trying to be like the fifth generation of Welsh judges on Cape Cod. And the defense attorney for McCowan was a guy named Rob George. You have some strong feelings about McCowan and about their their case against him. Why don't you just... Well, let's just start by saying that originally McCowan says he only knows her as somebody on his route. And the first two times he's questioned, he doesn't know her. He's never really interacted with her beyond just recognizing her from the route. And when they finally bring in the DNA results, he, according to the detective, lowers his head and says, I guess it could be me. Now, what occurs next is debatable, depending on who you believe, because he's questioned. And in Massachusetts, there's obviously this odd law where you can, he doesn't ask for a lawyer, you can turn down the recording of an interrogation. So you can have it recorded or not. And he turns down the recording. Right, which is a huge mistake. So it's a huge mistake. So it's not recorded. So then it becomes his word against the detective's words. The detectives say that he confesses and that he confesses that he and his friend Jeremy go to Kristen McCowan's house on Friday to have sex. He goes there because he knows he can have sex with her. He goes upstairs to have sex with her while he's having sex with her. His friend Jeremy starts robbing the place. And then when they're done having sex, Krista notices the robbery and then Jeremy kills her. McCowan's story changes. As time goes on. Right, it it evolves. So it's a little confusing. So correct me here where I'm getting... No, I think you're you're right on. So what he says is originally he went there on Thursday. That's his trash day. And in fact, the guy he worked for, for Truro Sanitation Department, Mm -hmm. says at some point he does receive a call from McCowan from Krista Worthington's house saying, hey, I have a Christmas tree. The lady wants to get rid of it. What do I do with this? And the guy tells him, just come back. Or you don't have the right truck. Come back and pick up the Christmas tree at some point. McCowan is in Krista Worthington's house. Originally, McCowan says it's that Thursday and that, in fact, they do have sex. Well, he doesn't originally say that. He says after DNA results come back. He never says that to the right. police. Originally, originally, originally okay. he says he doesn't. And I find that that is actually fairly understandable. McCowan is a big African-American garbage collector. I think he would automatically have been a suspect if he had said, yes, she's somebody along my route. And apparently along his route, he had hookups with many different women. He was an attractive guy. Allegedly, He was kind of a player. And he does say that there were a number of women along his route that he would have hookups with, and which seems kind of bizarre because you think garbage man. And But this is a population of 900 people. There's very few men who are under the age of 70, year-round population. He's kind of a charmer. He's not very smart, though. McCowan had a IQ of 76. 
So his story changes over time. What really gives me pause, though, is his low IQ. He's also under the influence when this quote-unquote confession takes place. It's a six-hour interview. There's only about 27 pages, Laura, from that quote-unquote confession. And given what I think the police misinterpretation of other witnesses' statements, I, without a taped confession, I think they were feeding him information and he was just going along for the ride. He's the kind of guy that if you say, you know what, Chris, the sky is yellow today, he's going to go, oh gosh, yeah, thanks, it's yellow. I think I've seen many, many confessions in my career as a private investigator where the suspect is low IQ and without that taped confession, I just think it's a junk confession. I really do. I think he would have said anything. He's high. He's not that smart. And I think they massage that testimony out of him. Now, you can't deny that his DNA is in her. It is. And let's also say that McCowan does have a record. And um, he had served prior to moving to Cape Cod. He had served three and a half years in jail for vehicular theft, burglary, and trafficking and stolen property offenses, um, which occurred in Key West. In the 90s, he He was had, kind of a young punk, but those he, are not the ones that give me pause. The ones that give me pause are the restraining he orders. He had had several, four or five restraining orders against him for threats of strangulation, fear. Um, he had three kids by three different women, and I believe two of the restraining orders are by those ex-girlfriends or what have you. But if you really get granular on those restraining orders, there are a couple of people who say, I really regret taking a restraining order out on Chris. One of them says she regrets it. The other one is a mother of a daughter of a 16-year-old. What happened was the 16-year-old ran away from home, went to McCowan's house. He actually took care of her. They watched a movie. They both went to bed separately, and he protected her. Nothing happened to the 16-year-old. And he treated her like a gentleman, is how she says it. I, I get that. But, but, but the mother took the restraining order out on the advice of the police. And, Laura, I know you'll push back against this. I'm sorry to say, I really do think there's a racial issue in this case. Well, the racial issue, his DNA is not there because of his race. It, and I not, think everyone's putting his race out there, but like his race didn't put the DNA there. His race didn't put DNA on his saliva on her breast. In order for anyone to believe that, you have to believe that that saliva got put there. I think we need to go further. So now he changes his story because now he says he didn't kill her and Jeremy named the killer that he had consensual sex with her. Because now the story's evolved again. Now he says he never said that to the police and that he had consensual sex with her. On Thursday, when he was doing his, his garbage route, and he had nothing to do with killing her. So now you have to believe he had consensual sex with her on Thursday, left, no shower, and then someone comes in on Friday and murders her. So you have to believe all of this is coincidental. It's a racial motive that no one's deciding to choose somebody because of their race and put their DNA there. It, that's true, but I... I mean, that's but, really, but, really reaching. Well, it's true, but I think that you have to determine whether that sex could have been consensual. And I don't think it's such a stretch. He was a good-looking guy. Krista was pretty... Look, if Krista only dated Yaleys, I would say no, but she dated fishermen. She dated... Sex she, can be consensual know. and then you murder somebody. It happens. But if the golden goose is the DNA that's in her, plus there's no vaginal bruising, there's no signs of over-rape. Yeah, but there's, rape can happen without vaginal bruising. 
thing, and you know that, that's not always sign of, of rape. If his DNA had been Latin, would you say, well, we're, we're targeting Latins because it's no, a Latin I'm not, I'm DNA. Not, I'm not making... But that's what everyone's saying here. We're targeting black men. It's like, I understand that the black population of Cape Cod is less than 2%, but people are saying the police are targeting a black man. It's like nobody put his DNA there. He put his DNA there. It's true, but I think we have to back up and say that what Rob George points out is that inexplicably sexual assault never came up until McCowan was a suspect. But I think you're saying he was only charged with rape because of his race. I'm saying rape was charged when they had a suspect. I don't think the race was a part of it. I think it was the fact that they had an arrest. And we see this all the time. Once they have a suspect in arrest, you see these overcharges. But I mean, then I think in order to be fair, McCowan's race is kind of immaterial to the fact that they find this woman on the floor of her house, which she's basically spread eagle, naked from the waist down with her shirt pulled up, and they don't count this as a sexual assault right off the bat, to me, is bizarre. Well, I mean, you can take the rape out of it. It's still a murder. He's, he's still in prison for life for murder. Right. I won't debate the rape. If you take the rape out of it, and he shouldn't have been charged with rape, fine. But his DNA was there. The DNA the saliva on the breast to me is a big deal because it was there to believe that as in the story keeps changing, the story evolves and evolves and evolves. He evolves the story to meet the evidence and then they want you to believe their whole defense now is that he was targeted because of his race. They actually tried to change the venue of the trial. There were actually two people of color on the jury. There was one woman and her claim is like, I can't believe the things the other jurors were saying about him. She said the prosecution kept on hammering away at the fact that he was a big, black, scary guy. Which I I agree is irrelevant. That has nothing to do with this. I would agree with that. And now I know that she came back and talked to the judge after the case and they tried to get that on appeal. And the appellate judge found that that in itself was not enough to turn over the DNA. Right. Here's the thing. And she still voted guilty at the trial. She could have brought that up at the time. She could have voted not guilty. She didn't. Right. And in fact, there was a review with very serious review about the racial issue that was brought before the judge to review, like, was there racial bias? I think they found that there was racial bias, but I think they found that the DNA evidence was stronger. I I don't think they found racial bias, though. I think that the appellate judge found race did become an issue, but the overwhelming evidence is too strong to give someone a new trial for that. The question that hangs in the balance for me is that there is DNA three different male DNAs that are found under her fingernails, one of which they say possibly could be McCowan. That could be explained by the sex, but I think until we know, and I'm hoping because actually McCowan is filing for a new trial on this. Well, everybody who's in prison for the rest of their lives, say they find another one of the suspects, it's not going to matter because all those other guys had been in her house, easily could have left DNA that transferred under her fingernails. We can share scenes of the crime even of her house on Facebook. She was not a housekeeper. Her house was really messy. So I think any defense attorney would say that the transfer of DNA evidence could easily have happened. But we now it doesn't take away his DNA. We would be remiss, though, in not talking about Jeremy Frazier. So Jeremy Frazier, as McCowan's story changed, 
Jeremy Frazier was basically the person that he pointed the finger at. He says, when his story changes, McCowan says that he and Frazier go back to Krista's house because Cowan wants to have sex with Krista, mm. has sex with Krista. Frazier, to me, is a really bad actor. Frazier has since been accused of a aggravated sexual assault against a child. He has also pulled a knife on British tourists in Provincetown. He's a vicious guy. They did not find his DNA at the scene. Though. Not, I mean, there's nothing to implicate him. Even McGowan never implicates him after that first confession. He never implicates him. But eventually he does. In and out of implicating him. It kind of goes in and out. No, he doesn't go in and out of implicating him. What he says is that they beat her up. They, quote unquote, put the boots to her, to Krista. That is Frazier that drives the knife. Right, right. I don't take that confession seriously at all. I right, think because they, he retracts it. And then when he retracts it, he's not implicating Frazier anymore. So McCowan's final story is what you're saying in this, Laura, is that he had consensual sex with her on Thursday and throws out the whole confession. The whole confession. So basically he has consensual sex with her on his trash road on Thursday. Someone else comes in and kills her on Friday. It is important to note that the sperm that is found in her is non-motile. And that only happens after about 48 hours. So the tails fall off of the sperm and they become non-motile after 48 hours. Okay. Well, I I read it could happen a little bit earlier that, you know, you could see that at 36 hours. So I I think there's a little debate on how early that can happen. Let's also talk a little bit about time of death because it is... For Krista. So Krista is discovered on Sunday at around 4.30 by Tim Arnold. And it was determined that she had been dead 24 hours to 36 hours prior to being discovered. The other interesting little tidbit in here is that there's a neighbor that sees a dark-haired white man in a big dark vehicle, like tearing out of Krista's driveway late Friday night, like around 12 p.m., I guess, on Friday night. So just to throw it into the mix of of this case, there's a, it could be nothing. It could be something. It could be be missing out the date. I mean, we know eyewitness testimony is, No, this guy's pretty reliable. Pretty reliable isn't DNA reliable. So I guess the question remains whether McCown should be granted a new trial. And you don't feel like he should be. You think this is a done deal. I mean, I don't know what his motive was, but he had means and opportunity. And the evidence is quite clear, the changing stories. I know that he has lots and lots of advocates pushing for a new trial. I'm not one of them, Sarah. I am for a couple of different reasons. I would love to know what the DNA was under her fingernails and nail that down. There's also some question as to whether Frazier lied under oath as well about certain phone calls that were made that night. He alleged that he had called his own number to a pager, basically. And if that number ends up being a landline, then he basically, Frazier, had lied about that. There are a number of things that really trouble me about this case, Laura. And from a criminal defense point of view, I feel like if that confession was not taped, that that six-hour confession generated 27 pages of notes. I can tell you from having been an investigator for years and years, a six-hour interview does not generate 27 pages of notes. I think that was cherry-picked. I think that they had this guy who was not very intelligent, 
pretty diminished by drugs and whatever cocktail he was on. And I don't feel comfortable. A number of things in this case give me pause. I don't like that he changed his story over time. If that story was kind of massaged by the police, and we don't know. We do not know what his relationship with Crystal Worthington was. And, I don't and- even actually, Sarah, I don't even look at the confession. I, I, I throw that out. I throw out the confession because I think it probably wasn't obtained well, but I just look only at the DNA because new DNA under the fingernails, if Jeremy lied, none of that will change the DNA on her breasts. But then the central question is, was that sex consensual or was it? That, that's the main thrust of this case, in my mind. But then you have to believe that she had consensual sex with him, didn't shower, someone else came in and murdered her. I think that's a big stretch. Well, that's true. But I'll tell you something, Laura. This story is like, I think part of the reason why this has captivated the media, if a case can be measured by like the number and variety of suspects, then this case has it all. It's been compared to like a game of Clue. Like at the center is Krista herself enigmatic heiress impaled by a knife on her kitchen floor. Tim Arnold was the jilted, obsessed lover who was obsessed with Krista. Tony Jacket is like the unwitting father of Ava. Krista chased for money and attention. Probably like, what is this heiress doing chasing me down? There's Susan Jacket. There's the whole jealousy. Jealousy. Right, exactly. There's even her own father, the Toppy Worthington, who she had a tense and distant relationship with. He fails a polygraph. He's very odd when he's told about the death of his daughter. He's very, like, forensic-y about it. It's like, well, did she have bruises on the left side of her face? Or he's not moved by it, it doesn't seem, or at least ostensibly. Then there's the father's girlfriend, the drug addict Beth Porter, who Toppy was helping out greatly financially. So she had a motive for getting rid of Krista, who's raising alarm bells that Beth Porter and her boyfriend Mm -hmm. Ed Harris were siphoning off a lot of money. You know, and then... There's Chris McGowan, and Chris McGowan, he very well could have done it. That's the truth. He just does not seem like the type. Whoever did that. They never do, Sarah. Well, no, but he does not seem like the type. Whoever did that knew that her two-year-old daughter was going to be abandoned in that house. That's with why I don't dead. think I don't what? think it was one of her family members or close friends. I don't think it was right. I think that kind of knocks out Tim Arnold and Tony Jacket because both of them loved Ava and Susan Jacket. I think if Tim Arnold, in a fit of pique, got so sick of her push pull with him and it stabbed her on the head, he would have come back the next day to quote unquote return the flashlight. He would have rescued Ava from that scene. Whoever killed Krista Worthington, and I'm on the fence about Chris McCowan, to tell you the truth, part of the thing with Chris McCowan is this. If he knew that she had a two-year-old daughter, does that jibe with the same person who a 16-year-old girl would run to and he would take care of her? It doesn't jive in my mind. Well, I mean, Ted Bundy lived with his girlfriend and her young daughter, and he never touched her. Yeah. So, like the winter dunes in Truro, Laura, this case remains shrouded in mystery. It does. It does. And just as an afterthought, I mean, Krista Worthington herself, to me, Laura, she's like a bundle of contradictions. You know, she was both relatable and aloof. She inhabited both the New York City fashion world and the desolation of Outer Cape Cod. She was glamorous, but messy. I guess they said that she had like these beautiful antiques from Europe mixed in with like 
play school toddler (laughs) mess, you know. Even in her choice of men, she dated Vanderbilts and she dated fishermen. She was both beautiful and plain. And most of her pictures feature her with this Mona Lisa half smile. It's sort of both full of invitation and dare. The loss of that brightness and that intelligence and and to know that she's dying on her floor and no one is there to take care right, of her Right, and daughter. a loss to Ava. An absolute loss to Ava. And what we could find out about Ava Worthington was she's still a college student and throughout her childhood, she still had contact with Susan and uh, Tony Jacket, although they were denied custody over her by right. the kind of loose allegations that they might have had something to do with this. Sure. I think that's what lost their custody of her. And um, so she was raised by one of Krista's friends, Amira Chase, who was named in Krista's will to take care of Ava if anything had happened to her. And we saw a picture of Ava. She's absolutely beautiful and seems to be flourishing. And she actually looks a little bit like Laura's daughter. She does. We know? decided not to post a picture because we don't really want to be exploitive of her and her privacy but she looks beautiful and we heard she's doing quite well and we wish her all the best we wish her all the best and we just a little afterthought on um one of the attorneys oh yes rob george a defense attorney the defense attorney he wound up doing three years for money laundering yeah just just so you know a little uh little information there so chris mccowan has a new attorney and i personally hope he gets a new trial because i'd be interested in that DNA evidence. And the locals, the- and we've talked to a lot of locals here, and he seems to have a lot of support on his side. And yep. thanks for listening again. And uh, we have a few shout outs this week. So one of my big shout outs is to my dear sister, Margaret Weir, who went to Vassar, shared her experience about that and was a contributing co-writer on the script. And thank you, Margaret. Love you very much. And Margaret's just like always a constant form of support. And humor. Man, she's and she's funny humor. as hell. Yeah. yeah and she's a great writer. Too. Yeah, Oof. yeah, and just overall fabulous. Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much to my main man, my husband Owen, who I'm like off in Cape Cod and Scarsdale, and like just really pursuing this podcast full time. And I'm only doing this because my husband's home, like working his ass off. Oh, and thank you for letting me borrow Laura. <laughs> and he's just doing it because he believes so much in this project, and he's really, really supportive. And he and engaged, you know. Yeah, yeah and he, he helps loves, us. He helps yeah. us, and he's a writer, so he edits sometimes, and he's just really, really fabulous and supportive of the whole project. And I want to say get well to Nicole. It's so unusual because she's been feeling a little under the weather. I want to do a shout out to my friend David Cole, who has a new podcast called mind. And he takes some of these very topical issues and puts a constitutional twist on them. It's great. I've listened to them all. And yeah, if you want to be smarter than you already are, then listen to, to David Cole. Yeah, and he's Cole really mind. funny. Too. He is very funny. Very, very yeah. funny. And we also need to do a shout out to That Strange, Chad and Ryan. We listened to That Strange their podcast with our teenage daughters and they were totally engaged oh my god if you can entertain five women on the way back from new york in a car trip listen to their like top 10 most haunted places oh my god i mean right and that they were chiming in we were like making lists so because we're like road trippers and i mean some of those are are, we can't you can't road trip to but i mean it was just i'm not going to give it away so you have to check them out they're just i mean they're they're super nice guys and they're their podcast is so fabulous. I, yeah. I just love it. Yeah. And as always, we'll we'll play the, the trailer for That Strange right after this, but please support us. This is time-consuming. 
and joy to do, but we could use your support in any way that you can. You can donate to us uh, via um, our website, yeah. which is ivyleakmurders.com. You can also please subscribe and also give us a five-star review if you like the podcast. That helps. All of those things help. Tell a friend. Yes, and tell a friend or an enemy. Yeah. <laughs> so hold on for uh, That's Strange with Chad and Mike. Do you have an interest in the paranormal? Do you find joy in creepy things? Do you delight in terror? That's not going to work. My name is Ryan, and I am joined weekly by my friends Alex and Chad to dive deep into the stranger parts of life in an effort to understand more about the world we live in. Come listen to our podcast, That's Strange. You can find us in all of your podcast players. So go listen now and please review. We'd really appreciate it.